Welcome back. Hope everyone's enjoyed their lunch. This is the Cato Institute's eighth annual summit on financial regulation. And today we're talking about ESG. Uh, if you missed any of the panels earlier today, we will have them recorded and available on our website shortly. Um, but now we're moving on to new content, um, which is a wrap back a little bit to what Commissioner Ueda talked about this morning, which was investing in asset management. So our next panel will address questions related to ESG and investing. Um, Claire Williams of American Banker will moderate, and I look forward to this discussion. Claire. Hi, good afternoon. Uh, we will be taking questions after we conclude the conversation part of this panel. Uh, we will be taking questions from the room, and audience online can submit via Cato's webpage, Facebook, uh, and YouTube, or on Twitter with the hashtag CatoEcon. So to introduce our panel, we have Lindsay Kalo, uh, Managing Director, Head of Asset Management Group, and Associate General Counsel at SIFMA. We have Jamie McGinnis, counsel at Ropes and Gray and former policy advisor on securities and capital markets at the House Financial Services Committee. We also have Amanda Rose, professor of management at the Owen Graduate School of Management at Vanderbilt Law School. To get us started off, we're gonna take a bit of a philosophical approach as well and talk about what ESG means and what our panelists' definition of ESG is. Um, so Jamie, I think you wanted to start off. Sure. Um, so the, the kind of, the question as to what ESG is has the implicit point that the definition is somewhat amorphous. Uh, this often leads to confusion considering that E and S and G are three distinct categories that are, are pushed together oftentimes. Um, and this has led to you know, questions as to why and, and what they are. And, and the way I think about ESG is, is kind of from the three different perspectives at which I've worked. Um, right now, I'm a, a asset management attorney at Ropes and Gray, um, representing asset management clients. And I think generally speaking, Asset managers view ESG as a combination of risks and op investment opportunities. Um, it's a way of categorizing uh, whether and how to make certain investments, when the investments are, are worthy, uh, and how things will look over the long term. Uh, and Lindsay can get into that as, as a number of her, as most of her members are large asset managers. Um, the other two perspectives I have are more from a government perspective. Uh, I worked at the Division of Investment Management at the SEC, and I think the SEC views things primarily as something of a marketing uh, uh, way of, of, of distinguishing asset managers from each other, um, and that necessarily involves some risks that you know, what you say is not what you do. Um, and so that is from where the regulators are coming. And then perhaps most uh, interestingly or most kind of newsworthily, there's the political world where uh, I think both the left and the right kind of view ESG uh, on the political side as an opportunity to advance particular political goals. And if there is something that I can you know, that hopefully you'll find useful uh, from my perspective, like one sentence takeaway, is that the asset management world views ESG fundamentally different than the political world. Um, and there's a, a big disconnect there and you know, folks, folks should be mindful of that. And, and I think there is some talking past each other. I also just wanna flag three things that I think ESG is not or is like partially not. Um, impact investing is a type of ESG, but I don't think it is all ESG. Uh, you know, impact meaning using the investment strategy to achieve a particular aim. Um, then there's also the kind of corporate social responsibility programs that asset managers have um, agreed to. That ne does not necessarily flow through to the underlying investment strategies that they have. Um, so folks should keep that in mind when they're talking about ESG. 
and then the third thing, kind of circling back to what I originally said, is ESG is not a monolith. Um, different asset managers view it differently. Uh, different politicians certainly view it differently. Um, and so, you know, think about that when, when talking about ESG. So, Jamie, I thought you were going to also say that you don't yet know what the S is. Well, I, I, I think we can, we'll, I thought that was a later question, but I, I, I confess, um, uh, maybe I shouldn't say this out loud, but I, I've, I've, working on the House Financial Services Committee, um, I always was, I, I, would, I, would, I, I have trouble, S is often viewed by many asset managers as relating to how they treat their workforce and their, their impact on their supply chains and things like that, but some, in particular, I think, um, folks on the Hill, where I used to work, uh, view it as kind of impact on society, which necessarily brings in a large-scale political element to it. And, you know, how you view what an asset manager does as good or bad for society almost necessarily depends on your political perspective. Um, so if you incorporate that into what is ESG, then it could be literally anything. So uh, just sort of building upon everything that Jamie said, hi everybody, I'm Lindsay Kellyo. Thank you to Cato for having me um, and very excited to be talking about these issues today. I think Jamie called it um, amorphous, that the term ESG is amorphous in nature. I think uh, it's maybe even more appropriate to say that it's really just an evolution, right? It's an area that's been new as of maybe the last decade um, and it's rapidly evolving in how we think about it. Um, so as uh, my members have been thinking through these issues and responding back to the SEC on many of the rulemakings that we're going to talk about in today's panel, um, we've urged the SEC actually to not define ESG investing. And our reasons for, uh, for that is not necessarily, you know, because we don't think that uh, eventually a definition wouldn't be helpful here, but it's because we have so many different bodies right now looking to weigh in on these issues and defining it differently. And we have lots of folks, not just Jamie McGinnis, who struggle with especially the, the S and the G to even know what we're talking about, that it's really difficult to not allow the dust to settle on individual pieces of the landscape here for ESG and sort of see where it evolves as opposed to just putting our, our thumb on the scale at this point and deciding exactly what it means. I think in general though, and you're at you know the rise of ESG um, uh, event here at Cato today, so I'm pretty sure you probably all know this, but in general it's going to mean a type of investing that considers the sustainability and social impact of any investment. Um, and to the second part of Claire's question about whether or not that means impact investing or whether we're talking about um, risk, uh, risk analyses, you know, I really do think, as Jamie mentioned, that it could be both, right? I mean, there are some investments where impact investing is clearly the point of what you're looking to do, that there's more a focus on that than on the financial gain from the investment. But much of the time, otherwise, it really is just sort of one risk among many that an asset manager or other is looking to take into account when making an investment. And that's maybe a part of the ESG debate that's less understood or less focused on, and a really important sort of um, basis that a lot of what I'm going to say today is based upon, because you know, a lot of what asset managers do is not necessarily focused as much on actual impact investing, but they have a fiduciary duty to take into account all of the risks related to investments, and that means also the ESG uh, risks as well. So thank you. I'm Amanda Rose from Vanderbilt Law School, and I appreciate the opportunity uh, to be here. So the question is, what is... What does ESG investing mean to me? I think that the question uh, naturally implies the reality that it means different things to different people, and that makes, I think, the term not very useful um, or productive. I really wish people would stop saying it. Um, uh, with that said, you know, some people view, e you know, hear the ESG investing and um, think of sort of an updated modern acronym for CSR, investing corporate social responsibility, which grew in prominence in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So this would be the impact type investing where investors are willing to sacrifice financial returns to promote um, prioritized social 
um, goals, and certainly we've seen an increase in that in recent years. There are funds that cater to investors with those um, interests. But others, I think, including uh, my co-panelists here, view it very differently and view sort of ESG as a necessary component to a more traditional investment strategy that, you know, you need to take into account ESG considerations in determining, uh, you know, an investor's financial returns, whether at the firm level or at the portfolio level. Um, and this is the argument or the vision, I think, of ESG that the traditional asset managers have uh, embraced and um, uh, articulated this idea that it's about you know, ESG is about value, not values. Um, and importantly, that's the perspective that the SEC has taken uh, in relation to the uh, uh, climate change related disclosure um, proposal that is pending uh, currently. So I think the interesting question is, you know, are the asset managers, the traditional asset managers, being honest when they say that ESG is about value and not values? Um, maybe, uh, maybe not. There are, you know, those who would argue that, uh, in fact, um, you know, maybe they're using client funds to advance the political preferences of those who control the asset managers. Maybe uh, talk of ESG and this embrace of ESG in the industry is. Uh, designed to curry political favor that may help um, uh, fend off uh, maybe regulatory burdens that otherwise might um, be coming down. Um, or um, maybe it's just a marketing tool that helps to court uh, millennials uh, uh, to fund offerings. Um, there are a lot of people who are making money in the ESG space, a lot of money. So um, I can't really assess the validity of arguments that ESG is financially relevant when we talk about it at an abstract level, um, because it's just, I think, covers too many things, it's too broad. I don't know what connects cybersecurity to labor practices to climate change. Um, so I, my plea would really to be more specific in talking about what is the topic we're discussing? Is it financially relevant? How is it financially relevant? And I think that's the discussion we need to have to assess whether asset managers are right, that they should be considering this. And also, um, it clearly informs whether the SEC might properly mandate related disclosures. Great. Uh, if we could turn to Congress for a minute, we just had a small shakeup, maybe not as much as some people were expecting, but Republicans uh, are going to be in charge of the gavel on the House Financial Services Committee, uh, and Democrats retain the Senate. So we have a split Congress. What does that mean? Uh, what are the implications of that on ESG policy and regulation? Well, I will turn it over to you, who I'm sure have way more to say than I do. But I will say that from our perspective, the biggest area that we're hoping for change is for additional oversight of the SEC. We're hoping for there to be more hearings, especially looking at the implementation deadlines and the number of proposals that are outstanding right now at the SEC, several of which we'll talk about today in terms of focusing on ESG. But there's a much broader uh, a set of rulemakings that is outstanding right now uh, before the SEC, and, and many that are actually just sort of, we're in this waiting pattern, uh, waiting for finalized rulemakings. Um, and with that being the case, you know, obviously with these rulemakings all being major, major rulemakings, it's very important to the asset management industry that the SEC take into account the entirety of the number of rules before them and not just look at the cost-benefit analysis on any specific rulemaking, but really take into account, can an asset manager implement more than one of these rulemakings at one time? And also, as we'll talk about later with some of the uh, climate rules, they're all interrelated with one another. So the SEC is looking at them all individually, but that's really, from our perspective, not the right way to be looking at it when the same folks will be looking to implement it, the same companies will be required to implement it, and they overlap in many ways. Well, I have some good news for you. Uh, I, ha I very much anticipate that there will be a lot of SEC oversight uh, in the coming out of the House Financial Services Committee over the next couple years. Um, my old boss is uh, very worked, uh, Patrick McHenry, who will, be the, uh, who will be the chair of the committee starting in January, um, is very uh, interested in, in practicing vigorous oversight of the SEC uh, and given their very, very extensive uh, 
rulemaking agenda and relatively short time frames for comment periods, uh, as well as a number of other things that, that have gone over, on over the past couple of years that have not been subject to particularly vigorous oversight recently. Uh, in terms of ESG-specific oversight, I think there will be a lot of that as well, not only from the House Financial Services Committee, but also the House Oversight Committee. I would anticipate um, hearings involving asset managers, and perhaps even index or uh, ESG ratings agencies, um, proxy advisor hearings, I think are all, you know, I would anticipate some or all of that over the coming years. But I think ultimately that is the extent of federal effect on ESG rules and regulations from the change of the election. I would not anticipate significant changes to what the Biden administration does as a result of that, which means that we can reasonably expect the climate rule, the fund and advisory ESG rule, the DOL rules, all to continue in the ordinary course and be adopted likely within the next year or year and a half. To follow up a little bit on that, uh, I had the opportunity to attend Patrick McHenry's uh, election night party and noticed that there was an ESG reference in his acceptance speech. Um, I also have, have listened in to a few Republican lawmakers use quite inflammatory language when they're talking about ESG policies. At what point does that rhetoric become substance? We talked about um, uh, the the hearings, we, we expect oversight hearings, but they're, they're hearings that people are going to go, they're going to talk, and that's fine. That's what Congress is there for. At what point does that start affecting the businesses of people in this room? So um, I would just, just to back up a little bit on the results of the, of the midterms, I, you know, before, in the last couple of years, there's been bills, sort of pro-ESG bills in the House that have stalled out. Um, obviously, those aren't going to be accelerated uh, in this environment. I think it's also the case that sort of anti-ESG legislation isn't going, you know, given our divided government, isn't going to, to pass as well. So I think that the, these issues will continue to play out in the administrative state. Um, hearings may uh, slow things down. Ultimately, though, I think the biggest constraint is going to be judicial review and judicial challenge challenges to the rules. Um, where does the rubber meet the road, or, or however the question was phrased? Um, maybe not so much at the, at the congressional level. There is efforts at the state level um, that um, may be more impactful. There are um, states that have uh, enacted uh, like anti-boycott legislation, where it prohibits states from hiring certain financial institutions if they are deemed to have um, boycotted certain industries like energy, and it will be interesting to see as uh, other red states adopt those laws, whether they have an impact. Um, it will depend, I think, on uh, how uh, imp uh, important that business is to the asset managers, but it's something to watch. And if I can just put in a plug, uh, my firm, Ropes and Gray, has a very nifty state-by-state uh, -state review tool of the ESG uh, initiatives and laws in each individual state. Uh, it's called Navigating State Regulation of ESG Investments. Um, as far as I know, it's one of its, it's, it's uh, the sole one of its kind. So if you are interested in seeing where each state is and it's kept uh, fairly up to date, um, feel free to take a look at that. But I, I, I think that is, I think Amanda's correct that, you know, where the, where the midterm will have most effect is on who got elected at, at, the, at the state level. I'll just agree with that plug. I think it's been one of the best that I have seen. So folks are looking to follow those developments. Ropes is where it is. Great. Take that. <laughs> uh, if we could switch gears a little bit and talk about the SEC climate disclosure rule. We're in a bit of an indefinite waiting period as the SEC considers uh, their feedback that they got to the rule and the, they're on record saying the sheer volume of the feedback they got is, is sort of what's holding them up. Uh, what in your view are some of the key points to watch as the SEC finalizes this rule? What are you looking for? Uh, and where do you feel there's room for improvement from what's been proposed previously? 
So maybe I can kick us off there. So uh, SIFMA AMG was supportive of the commission's goals, which as many of you probably know, um, in that proposal, it was to address the lack of um, a mandatory and consistent and comparable framework uh, for all registrants. Um, but there were a lot of issues that we pointed out and, and focused on in our comment letter that we're hoping that they will address in the final rule. Just to name a couple of them, um, in particular, the materiality standard that the SEC uses throughout the proposal is not consistent and not necessarily reflects uh, the historical view of materiality, and that is, um, from our perspective, an area that uh, could lead to more investor confusion in the future, which obviously cuts against the SEC's uh, goal in the proposal. Um, and also, um, with, re with respect to where the disclosures will be based, um, we do believe the SEC should put together um, or should require a separate form, um, a single separate form that would have a lot of the information that they include in the proposal that would be furnished, not, uh, not filed with the commission. And the reason for that, again, going back to the materiality piece and otherwise, is to ensure that uh, that it's easier for investors to figure out what is considered material and so that the information is all sort of in one place so that investors uh, can find it and use it more easily. I, I, I suppose one point that should be made explicit um, that was said there is the asset management industry is perhaps generally more supportive of the climate disclosure rule than maybe many operating companies or, you know, Take your take your pick, the Chamber of Commerce, or yeah, it, it because uh, in part because in the view of the man industry, this is the kind of information that that uh, that and asset managers investors want um, when they're making their decisions, and thus the asset managers want it. Um, and another point is there's the the climate rulemaking and perhaps additional, uh, I guess S rulemakings involving you know corporate. Uh, information about the, the workforce that are likely forthcoming. And then there's the fund and advisor rule, uh, which proposes to split up the ESG world in asset management into integration funds, uh, ESG focus funds, and impact funds. I think broadly speaking, that is a reasonable categorization. The specifics of that rulemaking, I think, are could use some work, and, and I'm happy to get into that later, but uh, broadly speaking, it appropriately gets into treating impact funds as a subcategory of, of ESG investing instead of the entirety of ESG investing, and I, I think that's uh, wise of the SEC to do that. In terms of timing, I would anticipate these rules being there. Both of the latter two rules have been proposed. Uh, I would anticipate them being adopted in 2023 and they will likely both be subject to litigation shortly thereafter. I, I have no particular views on the likelihood of success of that litigation, but it's something that the industry is aware of and, and is prepared for. And where I thought you were gonna go by saying in terms of timing is, I will also underscore that we pointed out concerns about the compliance period with that rulemaking, with the climate disclosure rulemaking, well, with both actually, but with the climate disclosure rulemaking and also the timing in terms of uh, the, uh, the statement, the preparation of the statements that would be required. Um, again, from the perspective of wanting to make sure that the information that's disclosed is actually reliable. And so you need to have appropriate amounts of time to gather the, the information. Um, in terms of the rulemaking that Jamie's talking about, I know that we're gonna go on to a specific question on the fund uh, ESG disclosure proposal. Another reason that I think asset managers generally, and, and my members in particular, supported the climate disclosure proposal is because not only is it helpful to uh, to the point that was made earlier by Amanda that uh, it's value investing, right? And this is, this is information and data that's necessary to, to value the risks, evaluate the ESG risks in a portfolio. But also, we are going to be asked for this, both from investors and from the SEC. And so, you know, I sort of see this area generally as being building blocks, right? And this is one of the original and initial building blocks that's necessary is to have the appropriate disclosures and data available. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk about, given uh, 
my focus on, on banks uh, is the scope three emissions requirement, something that banks are not particularly fond of. Uh, I wanted to get your take on what asset managers and investors, uh, how, how they view those rules. And for those unfamiliar, scope three reporting requirements require reporting up and down the supply chain. So uh, would you want to add something to that? Yeah, so specifically with regard to scope three, um, yeah, I feel like a little bit of a broken record at this point, but our belief on it is, and our, our focus has been that the information would be great. It would be wonderful to have. Uh, but many of my members, not all, but many of my members believe that at the moment, the data is just not good enough for it to be required. And the SEC's current proposal does make it mandatory. Scope three disclosures would be mandatory. Um, instead, we suggest in our comments to the commission that they should uh, reevaluate scope three in the future once the data is a little bit better, or in the alternative, at least limit the scope three admissions to those that are material in nature, which would not be, it's, it's a much broader proposal at the moment. So I think we've talked a little bit about the scope three obligations and the other panels as well. I think there are methodological difficulties and costs associated with um, those disclosure mandates that um, are um, troublesome. I, do, I, I did think that the proposal did apply a materiality qualifier to the scope three requirements unless the company um, had uh, publicly disclosed some scope three target. But I don't think, if I am right on that, I don't think it's a complete answer to some of the concerns. I think um, there is a concern about liability risk. And I think it's important to note as we talk about sort of the American experience and the European experience, that we have a particular litigation environment in the US that plays a role in thinking about mandatory disclosures and what is um, best for companies and for investors. And so I think materiality is a, I don't know if it's being used in the traditional sense, um, it, but uh, to the extent that it is, it's still a fuzzy concept. And so there's liability risk uh, in particular, of particular concern with related, um, related to scope three emissions. There's a safe harbor that's meant to address that in the proposed rules that's specifically about scope three disclosures, but it's written in a way that is not going to provide much protection. Um, so I think there uh, is uh, concern there about litigation risk. I think that the scope three, you know, we'll see how the final rule looks at the end of the day, but I think that the scope three um, mandates also increase the vulnerability of the uh, rule to um, challenge uh, in court. Um, although there is this attempt to link it to financial materiality, I think there is a sense that it's really about enabling companies and investors to pressure down the supply chain to reduce emissions, which may be a, a laudable goal, but whether it's the SEC's um, province to promote that goal through disclosure rules, I think is, is going to be uh, an, an issue we'll see debated. And just to make it explicit, my, my former employers on the Hill on the Republican side would not view any of that information as financially material. So that will be the point of view that they come from. Got it. And I am going to refer to my notes here because this one is a mouthful. Um, as everyone is probably aware, the SEC's enhanced disclosures by investment advisors and funds about ESG investment practices uh, turned out to be quite controversial. A similar question as to the climate disclosure rule where are we on it? Uh, what do you expect as far as timing? Uh, and what do you want to be included? I, I may have jumped the gun here. I, I would anticipate it being adopted next year. It was part of the number of rulemakings at the commission that were uh, subject to issues regarding the comment file. So they had to reopen the comment file in October to allow people to resubmit comments that they had already attempted to file. We actually ran into this uh, filing, the CIFMA AMG comment letter earlier this summer. Uh, we are understanding or we are hearing that both the climate and funded advisory SG rule will be next year. I think it makes all the sense in the world for the climate rule to come out either before, either at the same time or before the fund and advisor rule because a lot of the data underlying the fund and advisor disclosures is almost necessarily bound up in what will be disclosed by operating companies and the climate rule. Uh, so it, I, you know, I, I, it seems it would be difficult to comply with the fund and advisor disclosure rule, which requires among other points 
disclosures regarding the weighted average carbon intensity of a particular fund, as well as the carbon footprint of a particular fund if you don't have the underlying carbon data about the fund. So I would, I would anticipate and hope that, that they will be staggered in that order. So just to um, reiterate points that, that Jamie made earlier in terms of what's in this proposal. So there are three different categories of funds that relate to ESG as the SEC sees it according to the proposal. The first is the integration funds. The second are the ESG focused funds. And the third are the impact funds. That's right. Um, uh, I think earlier uh, Jamie may have said that, that he thinks that those might be reasonable categories. I will um, uh, debate that in terms of where the industry is coming out on it. Um, from my members' perspectives, um, the integration fund category um, is going to be very, very difficult for folks to, um, to implement. It's, it's a very broad category. Um, and could really sort of capture a lot of different funds just because they take into account ESG risks, as I was mentioning earlier. Um, so we suggested to the commission that they should consider limiting that category to only those funds that opt into it or eliminate the category altogether. Um, just again, for clarity's sake, uh, on behalf of investors. The ESG-focused funds um, also is a bit too broad from our perspective and should be limited to those where the where ESG factors are part of the fund's principal trading strategies and they do ESG advertising and they have an ESG name. And that's, again, as I mentioned, there's a lot of these other rulemakings that are sort of percolating. There's the ESG fund naming rule as well. So we're really trying to sort of rationalize the SEC's proposals sort of across the board, and that would do that as well. So for those two categories, there are obviously a need uh, for an ESG-type category, but uh, they should be a bit more um, specific in nature. I'd just like to amend or clarify my previous comments. I think the, the categories themselves are reasonable and set up, but in the implementation, I entirely agree with what Lindsay just said. Um, we're seeing from some of our, one of our fund complexes, for example, had, I can't remember, it was either 105 or 107, a large number of, of funds. Um, and yeah, they, it, as written, it is at least possible that a substantial majority of them will be caught up in the rule. And the question is, does that make sense? Is, is every fund really an ESG fund? And I think it would make a lot more sense for the, uh, the SEC to uh, make the ESG rule truly only apply to ESG funds. As our outside counsel, I assumed you probably deep down really agreed with us. Um, the last two pieces I'll mention um, with regard to this rulemaking, um, we also brought up significant concerns with the cost-benefit analysis with it, which you know, again, that's that's something that folks hear a lot about a lot of these different rulemakings. But with this one in particular, I think the SEC was underestimating how much it will be for asset managers to comply with what's in the proposal. And again, an extended compliance period, particularly if the rulemakings overlap with one another, would be helpful. And to the point that Jamie made about the reopening of the comment periods, um, it's that's a really big problem, or potentially a really big problem. It was great that the SEC sort of acknowledged that they had the tech issues that they had with their website and reopened it to make sure that they got all the comments from the industry for those who wanted to participate. But that being said, it did restart the clock, which makes it even more likely that there'll be an overlap with implementation of many of these rulemakings, which could have significant implications for the industry. Amanda, do you want to chime in? So I would just say I haven't um, followed these rules as closely as the, the climate rule. I would say, you know, in principle, I think um, these efforts are worthwhile. ESG's been sort of the Wild West. I think investors need to understand if they're buying into a fund what that means, and um, there needs to be accountability. But in terms of the specifics of, of the rule and uh, the costs that they'll impose and whether they're um, uh, overbroad is uh, something that the, the comment process is, is designed to to ferret out, so that needs time to, to work through. Great. Uh, on enforcement, the SEC's new climate and ESG task force has largely worked behind the scenes, but it's also brought some big cases over what it says are ESG fund misstatements, notably a 1.5 million fine against BNY Mellon Investment Advisors earlier this year. 
And the SEC announced just this week uh, a record 760 enforcement actions, up 9% from the year before. Do you expect ESG enforcement to continue ratcheting up, and is that a good thing, or is it a sign of an overzealous SEC? I'll take it. Uh, so, I, I, yeah, as I said earlier, there is the possibility of uh, asset managers either misstating or overstating the effect of ESG on their investment strategies uh, in the case of the aforementioned settlement, um, the, the, the relevant manager said that they applied a particular ESG uh, um, analysis to all of their portfolio investments. They did not. They did it to a, a large portion, but not literally everyone, and that is, that's what led to the settlement. Um, at the same time, it was a, maybe it was a very large fine, and it was a fairly aggressive settlement. Uh, considering there was no finding of material impact. These, a number of the funds at issue were not actually ESG funds, and their, the ESG was not part of their principal investment strategies, and yet they were subject to a, a fairly large penalty. Um, so, you know, I think the, the understanding that industry has received from this is to say what you do and do what you say, um, because, it, you know, if you say you're doing something, even if it's not necessarily material to your investors, if you're not doing it, you can be subject to SEC enforcement. And we also did have some indications ahead of that settlement that the SEC was beginning to look at these types of issues. Um, and so to your latter question there, I think, Claire, that we can definitely um, expect to see more, unfortunately. Um, I would say, you know, I, not speaking to any particular enforcement matter, just making a, a broader point. Um, I think there should be uh, accountability across all types of products. Um, but I'd make the observation that the SEC is a agency with limited resources. And when it comes to enforcement matters and when it comes to rulemaking, there's you know a lot of different things it needs to focus on. And so uh, you know, in a world of infinite uh, resources, uh, enforcement maybe optimally would, would reach everything. But I think there needs to be a prioritization um, that is tethered to harm to investors. Great. Um, we've talked a lot today about the E part of ESG and a lot today in the conference uh, as well. And to a certain extent, that makes sense. There's a lot of focus on the environmental part. Uh, what kind of S&G initiatives might be in the offing? And do you think this focus on energy uh, makes sense? Do you think that we're losing out by not talking more about the social and governance part of this? In terms of what other initiatives we might see coming up on the line that relate to SNG, there um, was a rulemaking um, related to human capital management that the uh, current SEC has indicated it may go back and revisit. So, um, you know, the outcome of the, the prior rulemaking uh, landed on a uh, disclosure rules that were very standards-based, and there is some um, pressure for more prescriptive uh, disclosures related to labor practices and the like, so, so that may be something that's coming up the line. Yeah, we're definitely following that proposal um, and expecting to see it at some point uh, down the line. I will say that from my perspective, you know, I think it's actually probably a good thing that we're focusing mostly on the, the E at the moment, and I think with as difficult as that's been, um, it'll be interesting to see where we go when we get to the S and the G parts because they're perhaps even more nebulous in nature um, and will have even more sort of um, disparate opinions, I think, among those in the industry, um, in the industry, in politics, et cetera. So, um, and you know, we are, we are pretty much sort of across the board really trying to drive home that we need to sort of let the dust settle on certain parts of this first and to throw more at, throw more into the fire at the moment I don't think would be good for anybody. Just one additional point after already having confessed to not fully understanding what S is. Um, uh, the, the one thing that you can look at for where things might go down the road is a bill that, uh, Past Congress, this past during this Congress, which started as the ESG Disclosure Simplification Act, 
um, and eventually on the, on the floor of the House kind of took every um, Democratic disclosure bill and kind of tacked it all on to one large bill. This includes uh, all sort. It, it started as an ESG-specific bill, but it include, ended up including climate disclosures, political spending uh, disclosures, like what, who people in your company donate money to, information about uh, cybersecurity, tax where you where what kind of taxes you pay across different jurisdictions, how much you pay your employees and and contractors. And it's a it's kind of a laundry. I, I could keep going, I guess, but I'll stop. The it's a laundry list of of, of topics that that um, you know the, the the Democrats would like to see as part of the disclosure regime. Um, I suppose all could be under the header of ESG, depending on how broadly one defines S and G. Uh, so this is, I think, if that bill were to become law, it would substantially change the focus of the federal securities laws and what they're used for. Uh, but if that, that could be the future of, of ESG disclosure for all we know. Yeah, I haven't, I don't know if I've read the most recent version of that bill, but it also had a, at one point at least, a, um, the creation of a committee that would uh, focus on how to allocate capital, you know, focus policies on how to allocate capital to, to green investments and the like. There was some talk earlier about to what extent this is about capital allocation, so that may be um, something people are concerned about. I also, I believe that bill, uh, you know, left it to the SEC to define ESG metrics that companies would be required to report on and also provided that these undefined ESG metrics would be de facto material under the federal securities laws. So I'm not sure that bill is going to uh, advance. I, I, I hope that it, that it wouldn't. Um, with respect to G, I mean, G is already part of federal securities regulation and has been for a very long time. There's executive compensation disclosures, there's governance disclosures of all different sorts. I think it's more of a tack on to the ENS than anything else unless it's about different types of governance um, measures that are designed to promote ENS uh, ends. And just to kind of circle back to the fund and advisor proposal, that is why so many funds could be caught up in the integration definition is because almost any actively managed fund considers how a company is structured. If nothing else, they consider who the management of the company is and how the company is structured in their investing decisions. And at least as written, arguably, anyone who does that would become an ESG fund for the purposes of the rule. And that strikes me as wildly overbroad. Great. Well, we have about 15 minutes left, so let's move to Q&A. Um, I would say that people online can ask, but my iPad has died, so perhaps we'll take questions from people in the room. Um, does anybody have a question? Just stand up or raise your hand, and we'll get a microphone to you. Please speak clearly uh, into the mic for your somewhat hard of hearing moder moderator, uh, and give your name and affiliation. All right, want to start there? Bonnie Wachtel, I've had a career in the investment industry. I'd like to go back to the question that our Vanderbilt lawyer raised about value, values or value. And with a particular focus on the index funds, where we have three big funds that controls half the money and half the votes, they certainly can, they take the position that since they can't sell out of a company's shares, that they have a free reign to try to uh, put pressure and influence what that company is doing through the proxy vote. And I can tell you that investors in these funds are captive if they are taxable investors. And I, for one, have been with Vanguard for 50 years for part of my money, and anyone familiar with the tax rates in the jurisdiction in which we are meeting would understand how that is not something that can be changed. Anyway, if you listen to somebody from BlackRock that led this, and then they sort of brought the others along, as with all things in securities where you don't want to be left out, what they will say is, it is all about value. We are just totally research and data driven. We follow the studies. The studies mandate 
you know, this level of diversity and this level of climate and this level of disinvestment. Now, we've already heard at the earlier panels today that the science is not what it's generally understood to be. There is more of a debate there. Our, the speaker from Norway said, told us how you have all kinds of conflicting studies about uh, whether these, uh, these rules are beneficial for corporations or not. What I'm thinking about is, so what could be brought to bear in this particular circle to try to put a closer focus on whether these things really are junk science or real science? You know, in the courts, we have something called the Daubert rule, where you have to reach a certain level of consideration by a judge as to whether you're not going to be considered an expert. Is that something we should have before we completely redo the American economy along these lines? Any, any other thoughts would be welcome. So I, I would say this, not, I'm not an expert on climate science and I can't speak to that, but I, I would say as an expert on corporate law and corporate governance, you know, uh, when um, money started, you know, when institutional investors started to rise as a force, there was quite a hope amongst corporate law scholars that they were going to solve this collection, collective action problem and be monitors of corporate managers. And, um, and that's largely, you know, to some extent that's come to fruition, but mostly people have been disappointed. And it has to do with the cost structure and the, the way that competition works in, with, particularly with respect to index funds. If you invest in, you know, uh, researching companies and, um, uh, um, making uh, uh, your votes count and the like, then you know you're sharing those gains with uh, other index funds that invest in the same companies, and you're incurring more fees. That's not how you how you make money. So it's interesting now to see this move towards ESG, and now the the hope is that the asset managers who you know maybe didn't rise up uh, uh, to live up to the expectations with respect to sort of standard um, uh, corporate governance are now going to solve really deep problems that uh, are, are affecting society. So. I think there is some concern about, you know, aside from the particular policies, are there the stewardship teams that are, are, are resourced enough to really be um, making the type of decisions um, that, that fall under the umbrella of ESG? And so I think that's one, one valid concern. One thing to, to keep an eye on, um, and that makes me a little skeptical of the, of the claims that this is purely... Um, an attempt to impose certain social values on somebody is a lot of these large asset managers are very excited about the possibility of passing through their proxy voting to their underlying investors. Um, I, the, I think that has a lot of technical difficulties um, and may or may not have legal difficulties behind it. Um, but there have been, there's been a lot of ongoing effort to m make that into reality. Um, I, that will be coming over the next few years, I would anticipate. And if, you know, if, they, if they purely wanted to impose their values on everybody, they would not be doing that, I don't think. No, I, I think it's a great question. And it's one that, you know, obviously folks have been grappling with. Um, we have a policy of not talking about any particular members, so it's a bit more difficult for me otherwise to to speak to this, but you know, I think you know that asset managers are fiduciaries. And so from my perspective, from where I sit, I've seen them try to do the best that they can for the investors in managing the money that they have on your behalf. And it's with taking into account risks and analyzing those risks, including ESG risks, and then offering different products and focusing on investor choice in particular. And there are some investors who are looking for the ESG focused funds, whether that be impact funds or just funds that take into account ESG investing. And then there are other funds that focus more on the returns. Um, and, you know, it, it seems like that's that's sort of, um, a lot of this has become very politicized when a lot of those options are still out there for most of the, if not all of the asset managers. One of the questions from uh, that I saw on the iPad before was, how do you make sure that the message is staying on the the substance of investing as opposed to getting dragged into um, 
the the more political elements of it. What what's what are your goals there, and how do you make sure that the conversation stays closer to the substance there? Just to go back to where we started, which was the vagueness around the term ESG, I think that leaves so much room for people to imbue it with what they think. And so, you know, if someone thinks it's political, that's what they, you know, but if we're more specific about what we're talking about, then I think a lot of that talking past one one another could be avoided. Um, so if we just talk about what we mean instead of using a, a term that means different things to different people. So we get rid of the ESG term. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> um, yeah, in the gray suit. Yeah, so I just wanted to actually ask a question about that. I mean, my understanding is so uh, prior to the Ukrainian war with Russia, uh, small arms and, and weapons of war manufacturing was considered obviously blatantly non-ESG by the ESG proponents. And then after... Russia invaded Ukraine, I saw that in Europe, gun manufacturing was getting pushed into the ESG category because all of a sudden we realized that it's good when relatively bad guys with guns are, are fighting, we need relatively good guys with guns to come in and do something about it, so now guns are good. I mean, if this is what ESG is, and it's just constantly fluctuating, we can't even figure out what industries are part of it, what industries are not part of it, it just seems like fundamentally it's a useless term, and I don't see it ever becoming a useful signal for anything. I'm always gonna have to read the fine print. Um, and see what's actually in there. ESG itself will never signal anything to me that's useful. Am I wrong here? Are we, I mean, is there, can we get to a real definition of ESG, or is it always going to be like, I have to read the fine print, so what's the point of having a title? Yeah, I, I think it is nebulous. In Europe, in Europe in particular, it has been particularly nebulous because you have a lot of different states with a lot of different views on what, you know, take E, for example, what's considered green, what's not considered green. And that's been very frustrating for those in the industry as well who just want sort of rules of the road going forward. And I think that that's why it's important for the U.S. to get involved in the debate too um, and figure out how best to move forward so that we do have a common, you know, language, a common understanding as to what we're talking about, even if it's not, even if it's principles-based in nature as opposed to being prescriptive. I have a slightly different perspective. Um, uh, and it's a different perspective than what my former counterpart, Commissioner, now Commissioner Ueda has, as he mentioned earlier, that he, he's shown some interest in, in defining ESG. Uh, I, I suppose, and speaking for myself only, um, the concern I would have around that versus you know, using a, a principles-based disclosure regime where, yes, you might have to look at the fine print, but I would commend to everybody that you look at the fine print of any of your, at least the, at least the investment strategies of the funds in which you invest. That's the lawyer in him. Um, well, right, it's my job to write those, so, you know. Uh, I, that's right. Um, but the, the risk of the government defining ESG or E and S and G is, to some degree, there will be some picking of winning winners and losers inherent in that, um, and that could, yeah, they, you can read Vivek Ramaswamy's book if you'd like to, to get the, downs, the downsides of that, but, you know, could have all sorts of downstream implications that, uh, may, you know, crowded investments and stuff, things like that. So those are things to be thinking about in defining, you know, what, whether or not we should be defining ESG. I'd also note that um, the Department of Labor in 2020 in their ESG rule moved away from including ESG in the final, uh, between the proposed and final rulemaking because it was so difficult to pin down and for similar reasons that, you know, otherwise they'll be pushing retirement investing into, retirement investments into certain, indus, into certain issuers in certain industries. And that's just the government picking winners and losers. Yeah, no, Jamie, I actually, I totally agree with you. Um, but the Europeans are, to the point, to the question that I think was made, they are making it a bit more prescriptive in nature, and it does make it more difficult, right? Because then it does end up changing where investments are and what's actually available to you uh, to be invested in. And that's, you know, that's where the problems stem from. All right. Okay, Yang. I thought since we talked about the history of you know what ESG was called before it became ESG, do you guys know who actually invented the acronym? Like ESG, who decided to pair the G with the E and the S? 
I think it goes back to uh, to the United Nations, um, and I, I, there's a, a paper that traces that history that Elizabeth Pullman uh, recently published. So, um, and, and I think that well, I, I think that the G was a, a natural way to um, combine these other issues and emphasize sort of the more investor um, focused. Uh, nature of it rather than CSR, which was uh, considered to be more about social, political ends. Well, we're going to add that to everybody's uh, holiday reading list and <laughs> learn a lot about the history of ESG. Do we have any more? So I, I take Jamie's and your points about um, those when you can choose the investment. And I just wondered if you could comment on funds where people really don't have a choice. So for I've been looking at pensions and investments online and the performance of these university endowments where the donors certainly are not choosing where the money is, the university is. And then also the pension funds that some of these like Louisiana Firemen's Pension Fund might be down, I don't know, one of them was down 14% last year. Can you comment on those where the investors are their money is re their decisions are really not being included here. So I, I think I'll, I'll, I'll speak uh, descriptively rather than normatively. Uh, those state level laws are affecting those perhaps more than any other in any other investments in our broad asset management category. Um, and the state level laws are all over the map. Um, yeah, certain states are encouraging incorporation of ESG focuses. Others are saying you specifically cannot. Others are prohibiting with uh, prohibiting doing business with certain companies that they view as boycotting industries. Others want to boycott industries. It is. Uh, it really depends on where you are. And you're right. If you're a you know a state uh, employee in those states, it will affect your investments. I you know. What to do about that is depends on your political perspective, I think. Um, at the federal level, I, I'm not a Department of Labor ERISA expert, um, but the you know ERISA is the uh, or the DOL is the primary regulator for retirement accounts that are ERISA plans. Um, that also has ping ponged based on who is who's in the administration or not. Um, the department the the Trump administration finalized their rule in 2020. It is currently being undone. I, yeah, as you may you may guess my personal views on these things based on who I've worked for. But uh, you know, did different strokes for different folks, kind of thing. Great. Um, to wrap it up, I think I actually uh, this discussion has got me thinking. We've taught, talked a lot about who doesn't get to define ESG or if ESG should be a term. Um, the SEC doesn't, you know, individual companies all have different definitions. Uh, who does? Who, in your opinion, gets to come up with the common understanding of when people like me write about ESG, what we're talking about? That's a great question. I think it first is predicated on that we agreed that it should have a definition, which I think we've um, gone back and forth on as we've gone through the last hour here. Um, you know, from my perspective, this is going to be an area, there's so much interest here, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, where there will be an evolution, where we will come to a common understanding. It's just whether or not we'll wait and allow that to happen naturally, or whether it will be forced by government entities or others sort of putting their thumb on the scale as to what it's going to be. And, you know, from my perspective, it would, it, we would be doing, we would be in a far better place if we allowed it to sort of evolve naturally and for there to be a common understanding that's then uh, uh, incorporated in whatever the regulators do. I think that's a reason. That's a. I have nothing. I have nothing to add. That was great. <laughs> uh, I, I think that you know, at a place like the Cato Institute, I guess I would just say, you know, be skeptical of, of government solutions here. Um, 
Uh, I think if you disagree with that here, a little hook comes and pulls you. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it, the government certainly, I don't want to say the government doesn't have a role to play here. It, you know, material misstatements and omissions are bad. And if you're doing that, you should not be doing that. Um, but, you know, gov government solutions here, you know, need to be well thought through, would be my advice. Yeah, just a parting thought. I mean, if ESG is about value and not values, then it's no different than any other consideration that goes into an investment decision. And I don't know why we need a separate label, or I guess maybe the work could be done in explaining what is different about the sets of issues from other business issues that make having some sort of category useful because, I mean, in my in my view, it does more, the term does more to hinder and obscure than it does to further like, critical thought about these issues. Great. I think that wraps us up. Um, uh, we're going to take a 15-minute break and come back at 2.15 Eastern Time PM for a fireside chat with Aswath Demordan, uh, moderated by Jennifer Shulp. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>